think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. And those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, and I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. Hey, so that uh, Christmas time creep is already happening. Um, Thanksgiving just finished, but now we're already on to Christmas. And uh, you know what the best gift you can possibly buy yourself is? What's that, Matt? Uh, a, a sweet graduate seminar at the institute of christian <laughs> studies uh that that's like the adult version of socks getting socks for Christmas <laughs> when you're a kid uh it's actually called self-care um <laughs> nah i don't know uh but uh dean you're teaching a class at ics do you want to talk about it uh give us give yourself a sort of another shameless plug on uh this this great media platform we've built for ourselves yeah, well, let me give you a quick shameless plug, and I promise I'm going to turn this right around uh, very um, carefully uh, into a perfect segue into what we're talking about on this episode. Here it comes. Uh, so the class is called Organized Religion, Christianity and Anti-Capitalism in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, it traces the history of that um, from basically like the, the early labor movement down to today. So there's all kinds of stuff and people and uh, things going on. And one of the biggest challenges of making the course, and one thing that I think makes it so exciting, is trying to curate all this material that I found over the summer into something that makes sense. So it's not just like throwing a bunch of people or movements uh, at the wall and just seeing what sticks. Like there's a kind of narrative that follows. Um, and one of those uh, narratives that I like is finding these kind of parallels or echoes of stories, um, either from people in the same time period or people in different time periods. Uh, and I thought this week would be a good chance to talk about one of those people that I discovered because it's an echo of a, an episode that we did in the past. So um, a long time ago, we did this episode on Reverend A.E. Smith. He was a Methodist pastor who joined the Communist Party of Canada um, really fascinating guy. He established these things called the People's Church. You can go back and listen to that episode. Um, and we're talking about him in the class. But there's also this woman that I discovered doing this research named Grace Hutchins, who has not a an identical story by any means, but a very, very similar kind of path of being a Christian, uh, being interested in sort of justice and social justice issues, and slowly moving further and further left until she joined the Communist Party of the USA. Uh, so I think that like, it's really fun when you start turning over these stones because you find so many things that are, uh, 
kind of surprisingly similar across narratives. And so, yeah, I guess uh, now is a good time to maybe give a, a preview of some of the course material, but also just talk about this very, very awesome woman, Grace Hutchins, uh, for this at this episode in particular. Yeah, sounds good. Um, this is like one more of those cool opportunities where we can kind of find our um, ideological forerunners and uh, kind of explore a cool history that we didn't know about. Um, so I sent Matt the essay um, that's on the syllabus by a woman named Janet Lee called uh, From Missionary to Bolshevik, Grace Hutchins and the Politics of Devotion. It's published in Women's Studies International. It's from 2003. Um, really fascinating. It kind of, it's like a kind of introduction to her life and also some of the things that she wrote and thought and did. Um, so, I mean, I've been thinking about this for a long time, so maybe I'm going to ask you, Matt, to kind of open us up and, and bring us into the conversation. Anything really strike you about reading this biography just in the last couple of days? Yeah, I think Grace Hutchins, uh, is a cool person with a cool life, uh, a really wholesome and nice life. One where she was, <laughs> um, radical and outspoken and never kind of backed down from her really strong convictions about, um, social justice, uh, that's at least how she probably would have framed it in her early life, but communism and maybe her later life. She's another really good example of the ways that uh, Christianity definitely inspires people to kind of want to fix uh, society, like materially speaking. Um, and she's also another great example of ways that uh, people who uh, sometimes want that end up drifting away from their faith in one way or another. Uh, I think to no fault of her own and probably more uh, because of the politics and sort of class interests of Christianity. Uh, but still, uh, that did happen. So um, Grace Hutchins is uh, another person that we're going to talk about throughout this episode uh, that we can definitely pull on and kind of add to the uh, the big, neat list of uh, Christians who are also communists. <laughs> it's a good yeah, list. The, the Love good that communion list. of Magnificat Saints. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think, too, what makes her so fascinating is that she appears in the labor movement at a time... Um, that is really like exciting and interesting to learn about. Um, but she also has a lot of other kind of things that make her story unique and, and important, I think, to remember as somebody who was part of that labor movement. Um, for example, like she was a lesbian. She read a ton about like women and children under capitalism. She had to navigate, you know, being a woman in Christianity and then also being a woman in the worker struggle and just has a lot of like a lot of issues that you can sort of think about and learn about just from studying her like single story, which is really important, I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. So let's uh, let's dive into it. OK, well, here's like some quick biographical information, I suppose, that uh, someone who doesn't know about Grace Hutchins might want to know. So Grace Hutchins uh, was born in 1885 and died in 1969 and did a whole bunch of stuff in between those two time periods. Uh, <laughs> she grew up in an Episcopalian uh, church. Uh, that was sort of her religious background. Uh, the article we read by Janet Lee goes out of its way to say that it was a high church Episcopalian uh, sort of experience. And I don't know any other types of Episcopalian churches other than high church ones. But, you know, they're probably some <laughs> out there. Um, she had sort of like, a, I mean, her early life was kind of like, you know, uh, I suppose bourgeois. Uh, she went to Bryn Mawr uh, and was really sort of committed to, um, you know, Christianity there. Uh, so much so that, like, after her time um, uh, as a student leader at Bryn Mawr, she ended up going to be a missionary in China. And I know what you're thinking. That doesn't sound like a very communist thing to do, but just wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so she went and she was a missionary in China. 
Um, and she ended up coming back because her parents wanted her to. So she's good on that front too. Um, gotta listen to your parents. Yeah, you uh, it. <laughs> it's in the Bible. That's it's in the Bible. <laughs> it's one of those uh, key communist points. There is listen to your parents. Um, not really. <laughs> Anyways, when she came back, uh, she became a more and more politicized person, kind of radicalized by some classes she ended up taking on labor. Uh, but also she was a part of resistance to U.S. involvement in World War I. Um, after that, she kind of joined the Socialist Party of the United States. After that, she ends up meeting her, uh, what I guess would be her partner, uh, Anne Rochester, who was a Marxist economist, and uh, they're in love and stuff, and it's great and nice and wonderful. They're like pretty involved, like they uh, like not just romantically involved, but in terms of their own development. Like they write books together, they travel together. They're like a, a really cool tag team. Yeah, for sure. Um, throughout all of their travels, they're even like writing uh, letters back to the press in the United States. So they're working together. It's cool. Good, uh, <laughs> a good buddy comedy film. Yeah, I guess so. They work together on a lot of things. Um, one thing that the article mentions that I don't know exactly what to make of, but sounds pretty interesting to me, is that 19, uh, in 1921, Hutchins and Rochester started a women's commune in New York. Yeah. Uh, the, the article doesn't go into uh, length to describe what that was like, but sounds pretty rad to me. Um, and they both went on and like worked in a bunch of uh, Christian socialist or social justice types of organizations throughout the 20s. Um, the just a long list of sort of Christian orgs that they worked with. So they were um, dedicated to the struggle, dedicated to the sort of Christian socialist scene for sure. Um, Janet Lee in the article kind of describing uh, Grace Hutchins' life says this. She believes strongly that Christianity embodied ethical values of compassion, responsibility, caring, and commitment, all essential aspects of political freedom. Similarly, she saw the premise of freedom and equality in socialism's call for a redistribution of wealth and a transformation of economy and society. Through Christian socialism, Hutchins was able to combine spiritual convictions about duty, commitment, and living a noble life in service of others, with political analyses outlining change in programs. In other words, Christian socialism brought together deep affiliations for religious devotion and social justice. While Christianity provided a rhetoric for duty, Christian socialism provided the strategy for her social action. That's a neat way to put it. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I think that kind of link right there is what we are always trying to articulate on this podcast. And Janet Lee, the scholar behind this uh, sort of history, did it for us. Thanks. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, really nice service. <laughs> um, so maybe we should like pause here real quick because this is a long span of her own life. Uh, you know, a few decades, born in 1885. And by the 20s, she's like full force into Christian socialism um, in a big way. Uh, and it's pretty fascinating that she went to China, for example, during the time period that she did, like they mentioned, um, Janet Lee mentions in the article that one reason that her parents probably were nervous about her going as a missionary there was because of the Boxer Rebellion in China, which was a anti-Christian, um, I guess like big, I don't know, it's hard to talk about exactly. It was a big purge. It was a big reaction to the fact that Christianity, um, had some very weird utopian uh kind of lefty but also kind of wild moments um in the mid 19th century um think like kind of thomas munzer stuff but like a little even more wild in some ways um and so there was like a huge backlash against that in the during the boxer rebellion um and then after that things kind of like 
chilled out, but China had like this really, you know, volatile history with Christianity. Um, so for her to even go to China, like, uh, I mean, Janet Lee mentions that when she goes to China, she's not socialist at that point. You know, she carries some sort of colonial assumptions. Um, and Lee goes out of her way to kind of help us understand that, which is really helpful. Um, but that experience also kind of, you know, puts her like face to face with different social issues. And by the time she comes back to the U.S., she's like ready to start getting involved um, in the labor movement there. All right. Well, so I did mention that uh, Hutchins and Rochester were both um, working with all these so- like Christian socialists and like social justice organizations from the 20s. Um, it's kind of worth noting. Uh, that in 1922, Hutchins and Rochester wrote a book called Jesus Christ in the World Today, which looked at the social justice problems through a Christian lens. It's an important thing to note because the story of the social gospel often just like highlights people like Walter Rauschenbach or Charles Sheldon or Niebuhr. Uh, but these two women aren't household names, even though they are part of a really radical and persecuted movement. Um, part of the story that gets left out uh, that is interesting to know about right now. Um I don't know. I mean, we could probably make some speculations about why they left out, probably because of her, uh, you know, turn leftward. But still, uh, they're two really important women that are part of the story. Yeah, it'd be interesting to, I mean, I don't know of any history of the social gospel that um, kind of zeroes in on their participation, Hutchins and Rochester in particular. Uh, but it would be interesting to trace that, you know, like, why, for example, do they not become as significant as some of these other figures who, you know, like they might have written like an important book or something here or there, but they didn't seem to do that much more than like these two women did. Um, like it has to do something for sure with the fact that they eventually abandon Christianity in some respects, or at least translate that Christianity into a, a communist project. Or, I mean, maybe it's also the fact that they're lesbians, like doesn't history doesn't choose to archive them in the same way that it chooses to archive people like Russian Bush or something. Uh, yeah, that's a really good point. But it's so important because the social gospel, I find, is often at a popular level, like not so much in scholarly research that I am familiar with anyway, but at a popular level, the things that people know about uh, the social gospel are like WWJD from uh, Charles Sheldon's In His Steps, that's one thing. Um, and the other is that like there were some Christians who thought that like justice was a thing and they were going to get into it. Um, but it doesn't often seem to me to be the case that people zero in on stories like this one or, uh, I don't know, like, isn't it like super wild that the social gospel, whatever else we might call it also included like two lesbians who became communists. Like, what? I mean, that should be, you know, I feel like that should be common knowledge just because it's such a fascinating piece of that history. Um, so I don't know. It's just important to, to keep finding uh finding those kinds of of narratives that just don't kind of make it to the surface for a number of reasons a number of political reasons usually yeah i agree good good people to know about um well maybe that's like a good time to start talking about when they do radicalize a little bit and why people might have wanted to leave them behind (laughs) um at least for for these political reasons so in uh 1926 and 27 um, Hutchins, or Hutchins and Rochester decide they want to travel the whole world, which Lee says is a pretty wild thing. Like women don't do that at that time period in the United States, unless they're missionaries. Um, so she's kind of carrying this big sense of adventure, it seems like, um, into just wanting to know a lot more. And so they travel the world and they go to Russia to check out the USSR, 
um, which, you know, is still pretty young. It's like when all the, the excitement is still, still going on there, a uh, really fascinating time to visit Soviet Russia, I would think. Um, and it's pretty, pretty transformative, I guess. Like it becomes a, a really political revelation. Um, Hutchins in particular moves towards being a, a communist and she comes back to the USA and has to kind of deal with that. Um, and she decides to participate in civil disobedience in the campaign, uh, to free Sacco and Vanzetti. Um, Matt, I know that you're all about Italian leftism, so maybe you could, uh, fill us in on some of that context. Well, Sacco and Vanzetti are kind of, uh, before my time of, um, interest in Italian leftism. Uh, <laughs> but they were pretty important figures in the, uh, left in the United States. They were both, like, uh, Italian born, uh, but American anarchists who were, uh, convicted of, uh, murdering a guard, I think, um, for an armed robbery that they carried out. <laughs> uh so some real some real anarchist sort of activities for sure um they were (laughs) definitely serious about their whole situation um anyways they were like um they're found guilty of murder um which i think they actually commit but anyways um they were sentenced to death um but there's this huge movement uh in the united states to get them pardoned there's a lot of other stuff kind of going on here too uh because not only are they anarchists but they're also like italian and um like immigrants too so there's like lots of uh sort of like racial tension tied up in some of the uh controversies surrounding their trial if i remember correctly um anyways they were uh both executed uh and um it was a huge thing in the united states uh, and she was a part of it which is a cool thing i guess it's uh, kind of silly uh but i'm always like really astounded when i find out people who like were alive at the same time <laughs> uh i know that's like something kind of silly to be astounded at but i don't know it's an interesting thing uh yeah that these historical people all lived the same time and uh they were participating in one another's lives in some way um it's like like finding out that everyone was at the same show at cornerstone festival (laughs) yeah exactly well it's like i don't know the same kind of like uh dumbfounded astound uh astounded sort of attitude i have when i find out that abraham lincoln and karl marx were alive at the same time like that's such a weird (laughs) thing for me to even believe right but it's also weird to me it's also weird to believe that we were probably at the same youth at you concert at cornerstone and we didn't even know it. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, so like she, so she's part of that, right? So she's, she's been to Russia. Now she's back and, uh, she wants to express solidarity with these folks. Um, and not long after that, she joins the communist party of the USA. Um, so it's a really like series of radicalizing moments, I guess, that sort of lead, um, to that decision. Uh, but it's neat because then in the late 20s and 30s, she ends up writing books and pamphlets on children, women, and work that become really popular within the party. Um, like the party distributes them and reprints them, and they're just a big deal. Everybody wants to read them, I guess. Um, I, I have this collection of like writings from the Communist Party USA. Um, that's like the first 50 years or something. And there's one that she writes about how the new deal is actually like not cool for women. Um, which is really fascinating because it's this neat, like communist take on the social democratic policy. Uh, and it's, you know, framed in, uh, in this way that's like, well, uh, more like more work for who and like how, uh, so that's, that's neat that she's like always, pulling these kinds of concerns in with her uh, as she falls down the communist trail. Yeah, that is very cool. Um, Okay, well then, fast-forwarding in her life even further. 
in the 40s and 50s, uh, she kind of put her uh, bourgeois roots to good use and supported the daily worker financially. <laughs> uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, uh, Janet Lee's article says that she was one of the primary stakeholders in the daily worker, which is, uh, in case you don't know, the newspaper of the Communist Party of the USA. Um, so there you go. That's what you do. That's a good sort of use of your um, bourgeois inheritance. <laughs> yeah. Here's a wild thing about that. Uh, here's a weird connection of like people alive at the same time. All right. So. She grows up Episcopal, um, she radicalizes, and then she supports the Daily Worker. Um, Dorothy Day also grew up Episcopal, and then created the Catholic Worker, which was a direct competitor with the Daily Worker. So, Mm. weird times. There they are, both alive at the same time, as people do. (laughs) Yeah, both kind of like weirdly competing, I guess, in one way or another for like the the soul of the left, if you will. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Uh, that would be a very good paper somebody should write actually sort of comparing those two biographies yeah that'd be really cool um, to people who are writing newspapers <laughs> yeah but like uh, even more than that like they you know they come from these the similar like Christian tree um, both like going to the Episcopal Church and then uh, getting involved in strikes or whatever oh yeah good point well there you go MA students there's something to write your thesis about <laughs> Uh, uh, please cite us. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, Janet Lee goes on to comment a little bit more um, and explicate what's exactly going on here. Uh, she says, what is fascinating about Hutchins politics is that even though she journeyed from Christian missionary to radical Bolshevik, her devotion stayed grounded in the sentimental idealism of a great moral adventure. The drama between good and evil that gave opportunities for noble duty and glorious commitment. The, the phrase sentimental idealism could come off as bad, but I don't think we should let it in this sense because, uh, I don't know, you kind of see that sort of adventurous spirit in uh, throughout Hutchins' life. She wanted to be a missionary and go off, and she did, uh, and she came back and was involved in a lot of things, too, that were quite adventurous, and um, I don't know, that's an okay kind of idealism, I suppose. Yeah, and I like that idea of a, a great moral adventure, um, and the fact that Lee sort of makes that a... Uh, uh continuity between her christianity and her bolshevism is really fascinating that like these are both kind of uh you know inspirited attempts to um subdue evil in the world or something or like increase the good in the world uh that's the the common thread that you know no matter what point of life she's in that's the thing that she's chasing i think that's a really neat way of looking at it yeah exactly i mean the i I think what it demonstrates is just that the um, the re- the religious commitments that she transforms into like social commitments end up being sort of like a lifelong uh, pursuit, not something that she, um, you know, just like ever puts down. It's just something that kind of evolves over time, but definitely something that I think was inspired by her Christianity. Um, yeah. Um, it's similar to like the story of A.E. Smith in the same way too. Like even when he becomes a communist and, uh, he starts to move away from his more explicit role as like a pastor, uh, you get the sense from reading his biography and reading his autobiography that he, uh, he still has that sense of like moral adventure. Like the reason that communism is good is obviously because of its, you know, desire to sort of change the material world. But there's also this real inspiration involved in it. And that's the thing that sort of captivates both uh, Hutchins and Smith in a really interesting way. Yeah, uh, Janet Lee even goes on to talk about 
uh, that there's like a, a type of romanticism involved in being a communist. And again, mm-hmm. not necessarily a bad way, but in kind of an interesting, interesting way, like, you know, the, the moral adventure kind of way. I like that. Right. Um, right. Can't be scientific all the time. Sometimes you got to get adventurous. <laughs> <laughs> you got to get messy, make mistakes. <laughs> oh, man. Communist magic school bus, though. <laughs> uh, comrade magic school bus. Comrade magic school bus. <laughs> comrade frizzle. Where are we going today? <laughs> to liberate the workers. That's it. <laughs> and then Arnold's uh, like, it, Arnold's like, why can't we ever just go on normal field trips? And then they kick him out of the party. Well, um, that's why he's in school. It's re-education. <laughs> that's right. Oh no. <laughs> uh, we have lost the plot here. Yeah, well, games, yeah. A different plot, if you think about it. Um, <laughs> the point of Janet Lee's article is to lay out uh, Grace Hutchins' life in such a way that. Um, that kind of traces her ideological transformation from being sort of like a social justice Christian type of person into like a fully committed Bolshevik, right? From missionary to Bolshevik, which is a transformation that I appreciate. Um, <laughs> it's a cool transformation, the best transformation, one might say. Um, <laughs> so uh, what Janet Lee tries to do in this article is um, something that uh, something that she admits that uh, Grace Hutchins might herself not like. Um, <laughs> So uh, Janet Lee says this, um, Central and Hutchins' ideological journey was a continuity of faith. While Hutchins rejected religion after 1927, uh, I believe communism functioned as an alternative religion in her life as it did in the lives of many other old left loyalists who dedicated their lives to social and economic transformation. Uh, she would not, I think, have agreed with my focus on such continuity. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, I appreciate uh, when an author can kind of <laughs> recognize that the claim that they are making is one that the person who they're writing about would not have liked, but still, yeah. it's probably true. Um, <laughs> that's good. I think it's a good take. I mean, um, you know, uh, she uh, Hutchins rejects uh, religion after she kind of joins the Communist Party, and I get it. I mean, A.E. Smith does it in a really similar kind of way, too, and, and I think we can find it in the lives of other folks. Um who kind of undergone this, uh, you know, a similar ideological transformation that you, you move away from one thing as you kind of embrace something else. Um, but uh, the observation that like communism might have functioned as an alternative to religion is, I think, definitely true for Hutchins. Hmm. Yeah, I think there's something to that. Um, but like true in the best possible way, like there's a continuity of a certain kind of, I guess, commitment or fidelity or, you know, the missionary zeal, like she becomes the evangelist of communism in some ways, like, okay, that's structurally true, I think. Um, but I think what's even more interesting is the way that Lee pulls out that she has a certain spiritual disposition that continues. And it's not just a zealous one. Like, uh, you described her earlier, Matt, as uh, having like a really wholesome biography. And uh, I think that's a really good way to put it because like there's a moment in here where um, Lee talks about how like she went to uh, like a school reunion um, and she was like a speaker there. And everybody was commenting about, like, how she was, like, really nice and sweet and, like, had a really nice smile and stuff. And I was like, man, that's that's the kind of communist you want. <laughs> like, um, she has this real, like, Christian simplicity or humility or something um, that just makes her, you know, a, like, a, a blessing to be around, even when she's, like, a, you know, an old lefty. Yeah, um, I think we've talked about this type of thing on the show before, I suppose, um, where uh, Christianity is really good practice to be a communist. 
Right. Yeah, McCabe says that, right? That, like, reading the Sermon on the Mount is the kind of thing you could do to, like, make a good comrade. Also, it could probably be... I mean, the opposite could probably be true, too, I think, in yeah. some cases. <laughs> For sure. Um, there's, a, there's a type of Pauline zeal that uh, does pro- that would probably would not translate to communism <laughs> quite as well, or just make you a really annoying communist. Yeah, um, that's true. But, hey, what are you going to do, I guess? <laughs> um, well, here's a, here's a really neat kind of meditation that Lee has a little bit later on, too, kind of reflecting back on this continuity. Um, she writes, this is like kind of long, but worth it. Um, in this way, Hutchins' early religious training that included an unwavering belief in the absolute power of the deity provided a spiritual foundation for facilitating a zealous embrace of communism as the hope of the world. Both ideologies required an absolute and uncompromising stance and were seen as infallible. I'm not so sure about that, but nevertheless. Uh Um, Such idealism required devotion to a pure utopian future and a moral rejection of the present um, was most probably experienced as a liberating force. That seems true. Uh, In the case of her communism, each personal sacrifice for the cause would have bound Hutchins closer to the party and renewed her sense of responsibility and obligation. That is like a very textbook kind of Christian moment, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. And then Lee goes on to quote uh, this person, um, Gornick, who interviewed a bunch of communists in the late 70s. And one of the interviewers said, uh, it was exactly like church. Every time you experienced the lapse of faith, you prayed an extra hour gave yourself an extra hundred lashes and then lee says mystical faith in the workers as a class and the inevitability of world communism was coupled with the attractions of a movement that expected service and loyalty so i think that like there are some things that i might want to quibble with a little bit in this paragraph but what i think is really good about it is that it actually it's like very nuanced like it's really good writing uh in that you can see the pathologies that are also common to both christianity and communism um and you can also see the ways in which uh some of the very things that make it so hard to be a a dedicated christian or a dedicated communist are also the things that make you like such a good one you know like being able to weather those storms um it's like a really hard kind of thing to navigate to have a healthy life like this sort of overwhelming burden of wanting to you know make the world a a better place um but also this sense that like you actually do have the personal resolve to survive all the attacks on that very vision that do happen throughout the course of of a lifetime yeah that's a really interesting way to put it i guess that uh christianity and communism both have sort of like mechanisms within them ideologically uh to yeah, weather the storm or sort of like bolster yourself after a, a negative experience or a lapse of faith or something. Uh, huh. That's an interesting way to think of it. Yeah, you could do, I think, a really interesting study on, you know, the spiritual disciplines of communism or something like that. The kinds of, of technologies that are available in a communist vision of the world that turn you into a different kind of person, right? Like, turns you into the kind of person that could go on strike for a really long time and help other people do that as well. Um, Or, like, turns you into the kind of person who could sit in front of, like, the congressional, you know, un-American committee or whatever and, like, tell them where to stuff it, you know? (laughs) Like, that's that's stuff that doesn't just come naturally. Like, you have to be disciplined into those kinds of attitudes, I think. Um, And it is interesting that Christianity and communism both try to do that in in a... in a way that doesn't amount to just being like, I don't know, like uh, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or something. Like, there's a deep sympathy at the bottom of that confidence. Yeah. Um, you said that there were things in this paragraph you might argue with, and I would agree. Uh, 
the comment that both ideologies required an absolute and uncompromising stance and were seen as infallible uh, seems a little bit overstated to me. In the case mm-hmm. of both Christianity and in communism, I mean, you know, people see both those things as infallible, but at the same time, like, she is from the she is from a specific type of Christian tradition that I think um, offers more nuance than infallibility. And probably, sure. like, uh, tackles her communism in a way that's, like, you know, with more nuance and infallibility as well. Yeah, I think so. Um, and you don't get the sense that even, like, uh, like having faith in something doesn't necessarily have to make it infallible in some kind of a authoritarian way or something like that. I guess it's more like, it's kind of like the, the whole the whole Kierkegaard thing, right? Like, you, you have faith in something um, so that you can have faith in it <laughs> in a weird kind of way. Like, you don't have faith in something necessarily because it's a, like an ideological block on your thought which I think is what infallible often implies. Right. Um, it's more like you have faith in something because you think it's worth having faith in or something like that. Yeah. that's And that's different than what they're saying here, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, whatever. Uh, I, I, think, I think also, like, <laughs> even being sort of bothered by that line or something like that, um it is good like it's good that the line is in there because rhetorically it, it helps you to attend to um i guess what i was just saying like these kind of pathologies that are equally present or structurally analogous within christianity and communism um that are really i think important to be wary of as well uh yeah well maybe we can draw a few more observations then based on grace hutchins life in general um Okay, so we're recognizing that there's some kind of like topological similarity uh, in some ways between Grace Hutchins and other sort of Christians who have um, undergone an ideological transformation towards communism. Like A.E. Smith is the example that we keep coming back to. There are probably others that we could get to if we thought about it hard enough, but mm-hmm. hey, let's not. Um, <laughs> let's think about it less hard. Uh, anyways, um, I don't know. What do you think we can make of this kind of thing? Like, if it's the if it's the case uh, that Christians who undergo this type of ideological um, transformation like become not Christians and only communists, like I don't know, what should that mean to us? Yeah, I think about that question a lot because, like, I'm a Christian and a communist, <laughs> and uh, trying to work out, trying to predict your own future, I guess is something that's hard to do, but worth meditating on every once in a while. And, like, I don't really see myself losing my faith in favor of my communism, but at the same time, I have to admit that, like, I haven't really pursued either my faith or my communism as, like, zealously as Hutchins and Smith have. Uh, Like, Hutchins, like, moved to a completely different country in a time where you, like, couldn't get in a plane. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Because she, like, believed in Christianity so hard. Uh, and then she came back and, you know, she like lived a a really tough communist life. Like she was a communist through the Red Scare and everything. And she like did not back down. Like she didn't go into hiding. She wasn't quiet about it. Um, and the same with like A.E. Smith, you know, like he, uh, was a pastor at several churches. He got run out of a few churches and tried to start churches with like striking workers. And he, you know, was arrested a bunch and stuff. And I think it's like, I don't know, um, it's like they put their time in so much and then they got discouraged so much by meeting a lot of resistance it seems to me um that it makes sense that communism would end up providing like a uh like a welcome community that wasn't going to kick them out for like doing what was obviously right which is like siding with the exploited class um so i get that i guess i just don't feel it maybe i just don't feel as like um 
I don't know, upset about it or something. It's hard without, like, psychologizing them, which I don't really want to do. Um, but just thinking about, like, my own self, um, trying to work out why I don't feel like that's really my narrative is hard to hard to say. I don't know. How do you react to that? those kinds of patterned stories? Yeah, I guess I could read them a few different ways. Um, I don't know. I feel I feel the same way as you mostly, though. I don't think that, like, well, okay, I can't see my future, but I suppose... It doesn't feel like I'll ever, like, not really be a Christian because it seems like something that you can't really get rid of. I guess maybe that's how I read these th- types of things, is that, like, even if you want to get rid of it, um, some, in some ways you can't because you've just kind of trained to be a... You've already been trained to be a certain type of person. Right. Um, and um, you might as well enjoy enjoy your symptom or whatever Lacanian thing people say. <laughs> um, it's, it's a really weird thing to throw out there, I guess, at this point in the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> whatever um i also think about like the politics of those types of situations too like um being someone who's like sympathetic to the soviet union or even saying that like bolshevism is good in like the 20s and being a part of all those christian organizations i can't imagine those christian organizations like liked that she said that right like i'm right. sure that they like probably cast her out sort of uh after that i don't know that for a fact but i just um one would have to wager to guess that that is the case. Yeah, totally. Um, I think all that's true. But like, even that being said, one thing that's also really interesting is that people like Smith, um, I mean, I haven't read like Hutchins own personal kind of reflections on this, so I can't really say, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if she felt the same way. Uh, in Smith's autobiography, it's really fascinating because his last chapter, uh, kind of reflecting back on his whole life, he's essentially like, he quotes Jesus a bunch and, he doesn't have any problem with him. <laughs> he like quotes a lot of utopic moments in the Bible. Doesn't have any problem with those. And then he tells the story of going to a big um, like Christian meeting uh, at like a gigantic stadium, and how he just like felt so weird there because he just felt like there was so much revolutionary potential there that was just not going anywhere. Hmm. Um, and I like the impression that you get is that he's not bitter about not being a christian he just feels like christianity has become kind of a missed opportunity and he like laments that um like you don't get the sense that he's you know put away his childish things or something it's more like (laughs) well i like can't i guess i can't be a christian because like christians won't do this um yeah which is too bad but but he has nothing against it um in, in principle or anything like he can't really think of himself without it so that's kind of an interesting piece of all those puzzles i guess yeah, I think so. It it's interesting because like uh just reading about Grace Hutchins' life, even like a little bit, um, it makes me feel like a type of like affinity towards her. I mean A. E. Smith too, right? Like they're people who are um I mean, lived at like different times than us, which is, you know, the opposite of what I like. But uh <laughs> <laughs> But they're also people who have like really similar ideological groundings, um, but they've lived these different types of lives or made these different choices. And I guess like uh, it ends up just being a choice with like um, what you want to do with your Christianity, but also like like what other people like afford you to do with your Christianity too. Like, right. Um, you know, if you want to if you want to stick around and like do the do this kind of stuff, I suppose you can. But uh, they made a choice that was a little bit different that uh, I think is still pretty respectable. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's no reason you can't read the Daily Worker and the Catholic Worker if you want to. Skaga two newspaper subscriptions. Yeah, that's, that's that's the real problem. Where you can Oof. find that kind of money in this economy? <laughs> Two subscriptions. I don't think so. <laughs> uh, I have uh, I have three subscriptions. 
Um, one to America Magazine, one to the monthly review that you bought for me, and one to my local communist newspaper, The People's Voice, which, by the way, you should subscribe if you live in Canada. Uh, but I often, um, I laugh because every once in a while they all get delivered on the same day. Uh, and I just imagine that's like a very weird, like, mailman reflection, like just putting this thing in the box and be like, I don't know, I don't know what's going on with the person that lives here. It's like very <laughs> ideologically confused resident of 209. Keeping Prince alive, though, you personally are. That's nice. I really am. I mean, with help from you. I wouldn't have bought yeah. that monthly review subscription, but now I don't regret it. Now I will renew it myself, probably. <laughs> there you go. Uh, can't live without it. Um, <laughs> okay, so that's kind of an interesting thing to think through. Um, why these things happen? What do we do with them? I don't know. What else can we just kind of like learn from Grace Hutchins as people who are Christians uh, and want to remain so? That sense of continuity of spiritual disposition. I think that's the thing that sticks with me the most. It's not necessarily a new point, but it's one that I keep on thinking about. Um, and also the, I guess the, the importance of including her story in the story that we tell about Christianity in the United States, um, is the other thing that sticks with me. Uh, like there's no reason that whenever people talk about all the rest of them, Rosh and Bush and, you know, et cetera, uh, Niebuhr and, and Sheldon and, and whoever, uh, that they shouldn't also be talking about Hutchins and Rochester. Like, people should be surprised that they don't. Um, I mean, there's so many people like that. Like, we mentioned in our uh, Community of Saints episode recently, like, people like George Washington would be. Uh, there's no reason that whenever somebody talks about the social gospel, they shouldn't also be talking about people um, like would be or like Hutchins and Rochester who just don't get um, don't get recorded with the same kind of relevance as, like, uh, white male pastors or theologians who end up often just becoming liberals. Um, and yet they're the most interesting parts of that story. So I guess for me as a Christian, like people like Hutchins, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't suspect that our lives will be exactly the same by any means, but like if we were in the same political party, I would definitely hang out with her a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, just providing a counter narrative that complicates sort of like the, yeah, I don't know the whiteness and maleness of the social gospel is helpful within itself. Um, I went back and was uh, reading Daryl Wanzer Serrano a little bit the other day. And um, there's this point in a different article he wrote, not the young Lords one where he's like, um, you know, people think that uh, after sort of like the, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, the epoch of postmodernism begins that like discourse is all, all of a sudden fragmented and there's all these different mm. sort of like identities and, and stuff like people writing from all these different perspectives now that we have because of the internet and all these other sort of, you know, things that usher in post-modernity. But in fact, if we kind of like actually look at, um, history, uh, we find that like, uh, the, the, the discourse is always fragmented. It was always diverse. There were always lots of different voices present. We just chose not to listen to them for a really long time. Right. Yeah. That's a really good point. I think, um, and implicitly, uh, a good opportunity to bring back, I guess, uh, a plug for this class I'm teaching. Um, because that's essentially the premise that I worked with to build the syllabus, right? Like, you could just have a bunch of people read kind of the same old stuff um, about, like, Christians who thought that justice was important. Uh, but I thought it was really interesting to sort of go out of your way and see, like, who else could you pick up um, that don't often get picked up, uh, like Hutchins or would be, um, or like Thomas Haggerty, the priest who helped found the IWW or, you know, that kind of thing. And like some weeks people are reading like all those people at the same time. And I think that's really important. Like 
having a, a really like webbed uh, interconnected picture of what Christianity in the left looks like and has looked like um, is important because today like the Christian left is very webbed and uh, fragmented and connected in, in weird ways. Um, and in that sense, like it's not so different. Uh, but there were like really interesting strategies that people worked with back then to try to pull all those strands together. Um, and that's something worth kind of paying attention to. Yeah, I think so. Because if you don't know those histories, then like you're really just like stunting your political imagination. Like if you don't know about Grace Hutchins um, in the past, like, I don't know, what will you think about the Christian left today? Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can find us all over the internet. We're on Twitter, at The Magnificast. We have a Facebook discussion group called The Magnificast Basement. You can get at us at themagnificast at gmail.com. Uh, I don't know where else you can find us. But those, those are the big ones. Those are the ones we actually check. Um, you can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash themagnificast. Super helpful that you do that. Uh, really thankful um, for all that support. And uh, also, if you were interested in this episode and you want to learn a little bit more about Grace Hutchins or other kind of people within uh, this orbit and in other parts of, of history, um, Christians who are anti-capitalists, I am teaching this class at ICS. It costs $90 Canadian. It starts in January. So there's still time to register. You just have to email academic-registrar at icscanada.edu. Bad word to say, but that's the email. Um, what else we got going on, Matt? Uh, yeah. So in our Redbubble store now, you can get uh, some really cool uh, limited edition. Probably not. You probably buy them forever. Who cares? <laughs> uh, some really cool uh, Magnificast Christmas mugs or stickers um, that say, "All I want for Christmas is a people's church." <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Dean designed it this afternoon. Put it up there. It's looking great. Looking get it in a mug. Uh, you can also now get a uh, Thomas Munzer All Things in Common T-shirt. Uh, I just made that possible. So nice. uh, if, for that special sort of communist in your life, uh, get them <laughs> some of this good this good sticker and mug and t-shirt stuff out here. It's great. Dean made it. It's the best. I did make it because everybody's got to procrastinate on doing the stuff they oughta. And this is how I choose to, <laughs> to waste away my precious, precious life. Memento mori, you know, you only live once. Uh, that's what, that's what they say. Um, three people already have bought the uh, new All I Want for Christmas is a People's Church mug. So, oh, uh, dang. You, you could be number four. You you have to have four to have an even number to clink those mugs with that sweet, hot, warm, hot chocolate. Thanks to Mario Armstrong for the intro music. Uh, thanks for uh, the outro music, Theological Spoon. Um, you know what? It's a great time of the year to listen to Theological Spoon and get on their get on their band camp or whatever and just give them a good listen, buy all their albums. Some of them are even free, so just get at it. All right, see you next time. come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no damn between us and our Lord.